Hello, and welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. This is the first of a four-part podcast series based on the webinar, Improving HIV Prevention in Primary Care, the Evolution of PrEP. In today's episode, listen as Dr. Letitia Alopre, Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, discusses inequities in PrEP uptake, the importance of sexual health screening, as well as her best practices for receiving an adequate sexual health history for her patients. For more information on Dr. Alopre and all our faculty, along with the downloadable slide sets, quarterly clinical thought commentaries, and a point of care resource hub, please visit the PCE website at pce.is forward slash prep. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Alopre has to say regarding the prevalence of PrEP, barriers to PrEP uptake, and the importance of sexual health screening. Thank you. So I'm really excited to be able to speak with everybody today. Um, I'm very passionate about sexual health and HIV prevention, especially moving it from specialized spaces like infectious diseases practices and into the space of primary care practice. So we're going to start with just an overview, talking about inequities when it comes to PrEP and access, talk about how you screen patients in regards to PrEP, and then review new PrEP clinical guidelines, um, and then what we have in regards to options, because we have one exciting new option, um, a long-acting injectable. So just to begin, we'll start with a brief introduction. As many of you know, we are 40 years into the HIV epidemic at this point, and we are still having some pretty um, uh, disheartening inequities when it comes to who's most likely to get infected or diagnosed with HIV. And we have, over this 40-year period, had major uh, movement in regards to scientific advancement. So we know that we have antiretroviral therapy that if you take every day, you are virally suppressed and you cannot transmit to other people. But for those individuals who may be vulnerable to infection, we have PrEP now, which, again, we have different modalities and how we can deliver PrEP. But we know if taken appropriately, can be up to 99% effective at preventing HIV acquisition. The thing that we know also is that in the United States and America right now, there's about 1.2 million people that the CDC predicts just based off of behaviors and prevalence within local communities. These individuals likely have an indication for PrEP because they're at increased risk of being diagnosed. But with that, we know that PrEP is not reaching those populations. So, I think ultimately with the landscape where it is right now, this overall movement to try to end the epidemic, trying to increase uptake and access to PrEP is a huge priority for many federal agencies. And this is just one example of a specific population where we know that we're not getting the uptake that's needed. So this is presenting some pharmacy data, pharmacy claims data looking at PrEP use among cisgender women. And while we know that there has been a steady increase from when PrEP was first approved, to now, and this is showing 2012 to 2017 among cisgender women, so women who were sex assigned at birth women and then identify as women, you can see that the CDC predicts that only 10% of women are being prescribed PrEP in 2019, which is a huge fall off compared to how many likely would benefit from being on this medication. Um, we also know that right now, primarily we're seeing the most um, prescribed prescriptions right now occurring for one group, which is white, gay, and bisexual men who have sex with men, we're not seeing that increased uptake as well in parallel among black, gay, and bisexual men who have sex with men and um, people who are of the Latino community 
So again, if we're trying to close these inequities, try to face disparities, having increased access to PrEP is paramount. So there have been tons of studies that have looked at barriers to PrEP. We know that they are at multiple levels, um, individual, interpersonal, community, and societal and policy levels. So just some levels and um, barriers that have been identified in the literature include information barriers. So in the beginning, when PrEP was first approved, by the FDA, a lot of people were focusing on awareness. People weren't aware of PrEP. But now we know that more people are aware of PrEP, but they don't have knowledge about where you go to access PrEP. What are the side effects? What are the costs? Um, who is currently in my community prescribing it? And this impacts true education around PrEP that would hopefully influence and improve uptake. We know there are huge structural barriers, especially depending on where you live in the United States. There have been very well-described prep deserts, like in my own state in Alabama. We know that there are community-level barriers in regards to stigmatizing beliefs around prep, um, not wanting to access prep where prep is currently being delivered, like ID offices and SCB clinics. Um, cultural barriers, specifically for people in the South who are people of color, and the costs associated with care, the wraparound costs um, for the visits, and lack of the ability to get same-day prep from a health department when you first do your HIV test are some structural barriers that have been um, identified and are being investigated. And then at the healthcare professional level, we know that having concordance in your provider, so being able to see somebody who you identify with, you might have the same lived experience, is a huge barrier when it comes to accessing prep. There's a lot of mistrust in healthcare systems um, that you know, have been validated through years of trauma. And there's perceived healthcare discrimination and who can really receive PrEP. So all of these things in and of themselves have to be addressed to really improve access. But these lectures that we're doing right now, talking to primary care providers, educating them is one way to address some of the barriers that we've discussed. So the next section we're gonna move on to is screening. So this is probably one of the biggest barriers when I talk to healthcare providers in regards to engaging people about PrEP, because in order to talk to people about PrEP, you need to know their sexual history. And this is really being embraced right now um, in a lot of uh, practices and a lot of guidelines from um, societies that we all recognize and respect that sexual history and sexual health is really a part of holistic medicine. So there's a couple of tips that I can give in regards to how to make it easier to take a sexual history and engage people. Um, when talking about their overall sexual health. So number one, it makes it a lot easier if you have toolkits on hand. So there are a few really great comprehensive sexual history templates that you can use if you have an electronic medical record that make it easier for you to go through the questions. Um, there are also differences in regards to that initial intake in regards to prep care that you might have a more extensive sexual history um, template. And then for interval interval visits, really just asking specific pointed questions about changes in sexual history. Um, there is also great patient-reported outcomes. So if you have the ability in your clinic, in your facility, to have electronically captured data for patients before they enter into your room, that sometimes makes it easier. There's a lot of studies that have shown that sometimes patients aren't always comfortable talking with providers about sexual history and giving honest answers because they don't feel like they're in a safe space talking to their provider about that. So having a PRO that asks about the five Ps, you know, partners, practices, um, and whether they're using certain types of barrier protections may make it easier to engage them once they get into the room. 
I also bring up the explicit model. Um, this is something that has been recommended by many societies and has been used in a lot of research studies and how you can engage people in regards to their sexual health. So ultimately, I like to start with this. Um, and the reason why is because it can, number one, guide you through the multiple steps in really exploring and discussing sexual health with individuals. So if you're dealing with patients for the first time that may be adolescents, the first question you may ask them isn't who are you having sex with, but who do you like? What are your relationships like? Um, and with that, with the explicit model, that first question really is about getting permission. So asking your patient, is it okay um, for me to talk to you about this? So an example that's given on this slide is many people are not satisfied with their current sexual health and have displeasure associated with sex. What is your experience? This can be um, substituted for many different types of um, issues that your patient may be having or pathology. So many people are not currently um, satisfied with their pleasure during sex. Can you tell me more about that? Many people um, are currently not happy with their barrier protection or they have rashes associated with condom use. What has been your experience, especially if you're noticing that individuals are not using condoms? Um, this is also a way that you can engage people in the five Ps if you're feeling like you're having issues or you're uncomfortable starting and bridging that conversation. Then based off of the response that they give you, you would either give limited directed information, specific suggestions about whatever um, concern that they may have if it's related to a sexually transmitted infection, or if you feel that they might need more intensive help in regards to their overall sexual health, you can refer them to intensive therapy. Um, the explicit aspect of this is that it has been extended to really explore our own understanding and biases in regards to sexual health before we engage in these conversations as well, um, which is important because it may bias the types of questions we ask people if we have preconceived notions about a patient population, which we are all vulnerable to. So I want to give these as just a few examples of how you can engage people in sexual history conversations. Um, and ultimately, I think as you do it more frequently, you become more comfortable with starting these conversations in your clinical practice. Thank you very much, Dr. Elopre. And thank you to the listeners for joining us today. Up next is the second podcast. Dr. Elopre is going to discuss the new PrEP guideline recommendations. As a reminder, to view the full program and to join the discussion, please visit the PCE website, pce.is forward slash PREP. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you.